Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. Costas, boy, do we love talking with people who have worked on really interesting things like colliding particles that explode and teach you things about the way the universe works. And today we're going to talk with someone who has not only done that at CERN, but Shantona has worked in multiple different roles in data, ML, NLP, all sorts of stuff at multiple different types of startups and multiple startups in the data tooling space, actually. So kind of a, a little bit of a meta play there, which is interesting. And she's currently an upsolver, a uh, fascinating tool. And there, I'm actually going to say there, there are two things that I want to ask. One, I, I have to ask about nuclear physics. I mean, she's a PhD, right? We have to ask her about that. But I'm also interested because Upsolver is really focused on, it's a data pipeline tool, but they're really focused on actually application developers. Usually you would think of that as an ETL flavored pipeline that's managed by a data engineer, but they're going after a different persona, which is really interesting. So those are two things that I want to ask about. How about you? Oh, 100% Eric. I, I think... We definitely have to spend some time with her talking about physics and science and about her journey in general, right? I mean, it's very fascinating to see people that they have like the, the journey that she has yeah. from like, you know, very core science to data science to products and data platforms. So we'll definitely do that. Now, I think... Uh, what we are seeing here with AppSolver is like a very interesting, I think, like trends when it comes like to data infra in general. And we see that like tools tend to start specializing more and more. And that's like a result of like, let's say, both the scale and the complexity of the problems that we have like to deal with today, right? So AppSolver is an ingestion tool, but it's not like a generic, let's say, ingestion tool. It's something that's like dealing with specifically with production data, right? Like things that coming like through CDC, for example, and like streaming data in general. And they are also like dealing with like a very common problem that data infrastructure in particular has, which is there are just like too many different stakeholders, but they are parts of the life cycle of data. And you can't just isolate the product experience to one of them, right? And that's like a decision that we see here from a product perspective that, oh, like we have the people in the production database that they are also like responsible for this data at the end, the generation. So we can like keep them out of the loop. And they take like a different approach there, which I find it like very interesting. And I think regardless of, I mean, how successful this is going to be, I think it's like a very indicative of the state of affairs today when it comes to building robust and scalable, scalable data platforms. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's dig in and learn about nuclear physics and see if you're right about uh, how to build a scalable platform. Shantana, welcome to the Data Stack Show. We're so excited to chat with you. Hi, Eric. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks. All right. Well, give us your background fascinating background that started in the world of nuclear physics, of all things. So start from the beginning and then tell us how you got into data. Sure, will do. I was born in, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, <laughs> got, <laughs> I got my PhD in physics, uh, studying nuclear physics, as you just mentioned. Um, I worked at CERN, colliding particles at very high energies, and then analyzing the aftermath of those collisions. Um, and the goal here was to answer questions about, you know, fundamental physics. Why is the universe the way it is today? How did it all start and how did it evolve? So really interesting stuff, but you have to work with a massive data and it's sort of like sieving through. There's a nice sort of sen sensationalized piece, but 
it's it's kind of good for reference. It's called like needle in a in a haystack or something, something like that. It's, it's it gives you an idea of the order of magnitude of data and sort of how much you have to uh, sieve through the noise in order to get the signal out. So it was, it was a lot of fun. That's another way of saying it. it was a lot of fun. Some engineering, data engineering aspects, some science and analysis aspects, and then presentation and you know writing papers and stuff. All of which, like separately, I enjoyed very much. So Eric was sharing before we started recording, like what he wanted to be when he grew up. Almost that reminds me. <laughs> when I was very little, I wanted to be an author and I wanted to be a scientist. And so those two things do kind of come together in in a lot of my work. And at this point, the audience, I'm sure, is curious about you, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do have to ask, how did you get into, like, how did you decide? I know you said from a young age, you wanted to be a scientist. When did you know you wanted to get into physics and then specifically nuclear physics? Like, what drew you to that specifically? Yeah. So I think I was drawn to physics from early in my high school you know, career, because I had a high school teacher who was just really expressive and like demo- demonstrative with the showing off physics. So like he'd have like a hot cup of tea in his hand and then he'd do the whole centrifugal mm-hmm. motion thingy. And it's like, yeah, that's, you know, it's physics. This is why it works. So that's sort of like storytelling and like visual aspects of it. I think I was drawn to that. And I mean, it's one of those things which is very unfortunate, but it's one of those things that people either kind of hate or kind of love, just like math. I think it's a little bit like you're conditioned to, you know, as soon as you hit a wall, you think, oh, I hate this and and whatnot. I I just really enjoyed solving physics problems. So, I mean, you could say that I loved it, but on the other hand, like, it's not that I didn't find it challenging. I just really enjoyed doing it. So, Yeah, very cool. So... You went to work after working as a scientist. And actually, I mean, amazingly, you've fulfilled both of your childhood dreams, probably. So you, I'm sure, authored a bunch of papers as a scientist. And so (laughs) once you fulfilled your childhood dreams, you went to work for startups. So tell us, like, how did you, what drew you to making that transition? Why did you choose startups? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I was thinking about this the other day. So I'm at at my third startup now. And um, every time I accepted an offer with a startup, I had a competing offer from a larger company. And somehow for, I mean, different reasons, I think, but maybe, you know, subconsciously for the same reasons is always, (laughs) always a startup. So there, there must be something there. I think, well, the first time around, I wanted to work in NLP. So the first startup I went to was in the NLP sector and as a as an ML engineer versus a data scientist. So I think that kind of drew me. But once I was in, I was hooked, I would say. I think since then, it's just the fast pace, you know, learning a lot, being, getting to, but also kind of being forced to do a lot of different things, you know, wear a diff- lot of different hats and just filling in wherever the, the gaps are. I really enjoy that. So I'm not the kind of person that is super content with having a, you know, just having a spec and then you go and, and you do it and, th- and that's all you know. It's, it's everything mm-hmm. that's within that box. I just, I like higher level. I like seeing how things, how my work touches other people and how they're interacting and stuff. So, yeah, so I went to work as an ML engineer and then from there I went to work as a data scientist with astronomer which is the first uh tooling company so i'm on my second data science tooling company now and i you know it's this so at astronomer my role was at the intersection of data and i mean i was a data scientist but i was i ended up doing a lot of like product work and interfacing with the rest of the company and what in terms of what they needed from the data team and having like making those cross-functional relationships and then dog fooding the product and feeding that back into the product so i really enjoyed that. So like all of these different dimensions were were coming together. And then at Upsolver, I do, I bring all of those things together. So I were, I'm doing internal analytics, work and data, but I also do product strategy and, you know, a little bit of product marketing, like thinking about what we're building, who we're building it for, how to make it better for that 
target uh, audience and then how to phrase it such that they see the value in what we're building. Mm, love it. Okay. I do have actually a, a question for you that's because I want to dig into to your work as startups and with data. But having done science at such a high level, is it hard for you to like see a bunch of pseudoscience in the news? I mean, you of all people probably have the ability to discern, you know, when, I mean, especially like thinking about things like statistics around science. I mean, I'm not an expert, but the news media, you know, can be pretty, you know, they like to create headlines, right? And so when there's scientific things, especially related to statistics, I know a lot of times, you know, they can run a little bit fast and loose. Is that, do you see that all the time? Like you probably can't help it, I would guess. Yeah, I do. But I mean, there are two sides to this, right? On one hand, I'm really glad that the news is making out because one of the things that we struggle with in academia is like getting funding, for instance, for doing the research that we know is so important to do, but we have to convince like the governments and other institutes to, to you know, also fund that. So like our work getting in the news is actually really good or like academics work getting the work is actually really good. So on that, on that, in that sense, I'm happy. But yeah, on, on the other hand, like the most recent one was with the room temperature superconductor, right? Like of, there was this paper and like all of a sudden everyone's talking about it and folks who don't have a strong sense of what the uh, results mean or what it would need, what you would need to get there are talking about it. So again, positive awareness is great, but the negative is, okay, are we overpromising or are we saying, are we misinterpreting the results and thinking that we are somewhere where we're not yet? Um, and I mean, being not at like being outside that domain, like I was in nuclear physics, this isn't superconductor physics, right? I don't have like a super great understanding of everything, but yeah, as a scientist and as a physicist, like definitely come in with that skepticism. Okay, let's look at this paper mm. let's look at that plot let's look at what error bars they're quoting and you know what significance they're they're claiming to have because we were so pedant i mean in a good way at cern and in particle physics in general like the statistics was so important like getting not just the number but the error bars on it right yeah. and you know seeing how different it was from like the null hypothesis and stuff so yeah these are things I think once they're sort of drilled into you, you'd never like let go of. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. That, that's actually, that's a super interesting. Okay. So let's actually tie together your work as a scientist with your work in data. And so one thing that's really interesting to me is, and let's maybe use CERN as an example, and I'm speaking way out of my depth here, but, you know, as an outsider, when I think about your work there, it seems that there are sort of obviously multiple components, but one of them is highly exploratory, right? Like you're trying to answer really big questions. There's an element of creative thinking that goes into that discovery. And then there's also this extremely high level of rigor, right? Where like you have to get the error bars right because you're holding yourself to a very high standard, right? And so that means like process and operations and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Do you approach data in the same way, right? I mean, data, it, it, there are creative, exploratory, discovery-focused elements to it. It requires a huge level of rigor. Like, what are the sort of similarities and even differences in the way that you approach working with data or things that you learn as a scientist that you brought with you? The short answer is yes. I try to approach data, my data work today the same way that I would approach it when I was working with particle collision data. However, there are clearly differences, right? It's, I think one of the main differences as far as like function, functional day-to-day -day work goes is the deadlines are um, a lot shorter, right? It's like come, what comes with the, the level of rigor um, and like detail in particle physics or any other kind of large data physics is you check it over. And I think there are some inefficiencies in that as well. It's not just like, okay, you're checking it over and that's good. I think that we, uh, at least within the, the confines of, of my group, the group that I worked um, with, uh, which was a 60-person group in a, a much larger 5,000-person collaboration, it's, uh, it's not as 
process oriented as like things sometimes are in industry. So you're sort of like, it's less clear where who's blocked by whom. It's less clear what the next steps are. It's less clear how, what the best way is to provide feedback or, you know, do a PR review. So those, those things looking back now, I think, okay, these were lacking. Like I could go in today and make a bunch of process improvements to, you know, to the workflow at there at CERN or at, at Davis. And that would help move things along a little bit faster. But I mean, with that, let me say, like, it takes time to do an analysis that is on such big data and, you know, going into so much depth. But uh, I guess on the flip side, what I miss is people caring about error bars, right? It's in, in industry, it's like okay, you, you get the result and then uh, you sort of move on. It's not very common to actually think about, you know, what the systematic uncertainty is. Even if you do think about statistical uncertainty, you usually don't think about, okay, what biases have I introduced in doing this analysis? So I do miss that. So I just entertain myself and, you know, like <laughs> reading academic papers and stuff. It's like, oh, it's, you know, this is not that. At the end of the day, like nothing is that impactful, asterisk. But, you know, if you're like doing, if you're selling an item, like it's not as impactful in some ways if you get it little bit wrong compared to like you're making some claims about having discovered you know a new particle but yeah i mean i'm sure there were, there are folks who would argue just the other way around right like <laughs> that yeah. that's like time guy so yeah you accidentally recommend the wrong product to someone versus making a fundamental mistake about the basic functionality of the universe <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us, so you've had a journey at multiple startups and you're at Upsolver now. Tell us what Upsolver does. Yeah. At Upsolver, we're building a data export and load tool for developers, for application developers that helps get that data, get data produced um, in operational databases and just like data that's generated when you have an application that's in production, folks are interacting with it. So some of it is like, what are users doing in there? Some of it is like deeper transactional data, getting that data into wherever it needs to go for other use cases. So downstream use cases might be analytics, ML, whatever it might be, whether it needs to land in a warehouse or data lake. That's We're focused on getting the data there at scale, at the same scale that the production databases are actually producing the data. So we're not like holding stuff back and with high quality. So as a developer, you know, you're used to um, being able to look at your, you know, look at your data, test your code and all of these things, like things that we sort of take as like granted in any of our our tooling, or like, for example, being on call and getting alerted when something, something goes wrong. So we're bringing those same sort of practices, engineering practices into a data tool. And we're really thinking of the application developers as the folks who would like feel most natural in our tool, I think. But I mean, it's, it's anyone who's doing data ingestion into data warehouse is also, you know, this is for them. We basically we replace a bunch of do-it-yourself stacks for this like complex, harder data from operational databases and streams and such. Yeah, I want to dig in on the developer focus because. That's interesting because when you describe the product, I'm thinking data engineer and they're building, to your point, they're building a pipeline that is ingesting some sort of logs, you know, application data, et cetera. And they're building, you know, your sort of classic ETL pipeline or, you know, even streaming, you know, depending on the use case. So I sort of go squarely towards like the data engineer who's going to be building and managing a pipeline. But you, which it sounds like, I mean, of course, that persona can use it, but you said developer, like an application developer. Can you dig into that for us? Because that isn't what you would think of, you know, as the target persona describing what you would, you know, sort of a, a an ETL flow that would typically be managed by a data engineer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. We were having this, so Roy Hassan here, you might know. I know him as well. He 
he works at Absolver as well. We're having this discussion about like, who is our product for? And we decided we just wanted to meet, we just want to meet teams where they're at. So what do I mean by that? From my experience at a previous team, being on the data side, we would get the CDC data. So the change data capture captured from operational databases would be dropped off in a storage bucket that then we would have to pick it up from. So there was no expectation and there was no, like we weren't allowed to go all the way to the source and get the data from the database. So there was a separation. I was like, okay, maybe that's not everyone, but there are teams where that is happening. And we yeah. want to make a tool that sort of bridges that gap and that, you know, you if you're a developer on the application side, you can send the data, not just to an S3 bucket, right? But all the way through to Snowflake, you can mm-hmm. write that, write the ingestion and easily you can write that ingestion that directly does that. And this is a tool that, you know, your data engineers can also, you can also give them access to it and they could be writing those pipelines as well. So it's just like gluing together almost or like filling that gap, bridging that gap that exists today between like the dev team and the data team because of the way that, you know, we've been doing things for a little while. So yeah, again, anyone can use it, but we want to meet whoever is, is that person, right? That's that's responsible for it today. And one of the things that we also notice is when we're building data tooling, we usually build for data personas. And there's this, at least this idea, and I think to some extent, fair idea that it's less like some of the engineering rigor isn't there. It doesn't have to be there for these tools because it's because like part, maybe part, partly because there's a lot of batch processes going on, right? So you can wait. Your SLAs aren't as like, you know, do or die, right? If, if it's a dashboard, then it can be a dashboard that updates, you know, let's say every six hours, not not on the on the minute or something. So, and, and that's fine. And for smaller scale data or like business data, that makes sense. Like your customer success person maybe do, does not, need to like con- constantly watch a customer, right? But if it is your product data, your prod data, right? Things that your users are doing within your product, things that, you know, your, pro- your microservices are talking to each other, they're, you know, communicating through message buses. And, you know, sometimes you make decisions, like not absolute real time, but within, you know, some short time frame, you want to make decisions about your product based on that data. That's, the, that's what we want to enable. It's like, we're, do it fast, near real time, do it at scale, and do like do it uh, with certain quality and observability measures so that you're not like making any sacrifices be- be- because you're working with data. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And can you just walk us through the, so you said that, you know, as the data team, you're going to get you know, a dump from the production database into an S3 bucket. And there's sort of a, you know, let's say the application developers are just sort of throwing that over the wall, right? It's like, we need the, we need data from the production database. And they're going to be like, okay, great. We're going to like replicate it or CDC it or however they get it there. And here's your bucket, right? And so of course that creates issues because it's like, well, you know, we need to like, change the schema or there's a bunch of issues of the data. So that creates a bunch of work for the data team. Is that typically the flow? Like is the data team asking for the dump? And so the application developers just sort of figure out the, like whatever their preferred way to get it in the bucket is, is that usually the typical flow? I've definitely seen it that way. And especially at startups, right? Like when you're, one of the first, you know, maybe the first person or one of the first few people that's starting to think about data and making data-based decisions at a startup, you kind of have to, and I've I've had to do this, like you kind of have to figure out what all the data is and where it all lives and none of it's, you know, brought in yet into, there is no warehouse yet. So I've definitely done that myself and seen and know of others who like sort of as a data scientist will have to go to the app folks and be like, hey, I, I need to analyze this. This is important for my work. But I've also, you know, like it's also true that app developers care about their data. They're, you know, because everyone wants to 
you know, <laughs> understand what they're building and what the effect that it has on, on other things, right? Sometimes as app developers, I think, or like production engineers, I think we, we're kind of we're kind of in in the nitty gritty of our backlogs and like we're moving on to the next thing for the next sprint right but the and like it's like someone else is making the product decision and it's sort of just coming and then today I'm working on on something and tomorrow you know it's going to be totally different but from my perspective as a, as a production engineer as well is like I really want to know how my product is doing today and or what it's doing today what's sure. what's what is it lacking so yeah I've seen kind of both directions i say just to you know round up round up that answer i think that like cdc is definitely not new or database replication right it's also useful for various needs other than analytics but it's you know i think usually whoever's like it, you're coming from two different directions towards the same data and you have like different use cases and different stories in mind we want to facilitate that, like coming at it together and and building something from the get go that's going to sustain and it's going to scale. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right, last question for me, and I'm very excited to hear what Costas is going to ask you. But you talked about maintaining a certain threshold of quality, and so I understand, and I think a lot of people understand that, you know, if you just get a data, you know, a, you know, uh, a dump of a database, right? Or a bunch of logs or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, like, we have, you know, we have to have jobs that run cleanup and all that sort of stuff. So that makes sense intuitively that your product would help facilitate that. But can you talk about some of the specific quality problems that relate to application data? Like, what are the, the specific flavors of quality problems that you know, you generally run into with application data? Yeah. One of the most obvious ones, and I think you were sort of hinting at this earlier, is the schema, is schema evolution, right? I, my, my payloads are going to change as my services talk to each other or, you know, wherever. So when we say prod data at AppSolver, we're defining it pretty widely. So we are talking about database replications. We support various source databases, but we're also talking about consuming from message buses right message queues so because that's also part of how your you know applications are operating and interacting with each other so but if i'm building for if i if i'm building a product for end users and i have you know thousands or hundreds of thousands of end users using my product every day then I'm going to want to make changes I'm going to want to improve that product and move fast and on to the next thing again going back to the like constant backlog and, and sprint cycle. Um, so I don't have as much time to, you know, promise a certain schema and then like make sure I adhere to it and then, you know, make sure I deliver it that way. So that's maybe just one of the reasons that schemas evolve. But the bottom line is that schemas evolve. And being able to, on the receiving end of things, right, you don't want that to break your your analytics pipeline. You don't want it to break your dashboard. And like you're not, and you know, the other fact of the matter is that if I'm a data engineer and I own, you know, maybe six or seven different data ETL pipelines, right? I'm not watching the data constantly. At least there isn't really, there aren't, we believe that there aren't really great tools out there that are watching the data like proactively, not just like after it's landed in a warehouse or something. So oftentimes these things, when there is a breakage of some sort or some dashboard is showing incorrect numbers or something often that is caught by consumers now fortunately data teams consumers are usually internal users so it's not like the worst thing in the world um, unless you're you're doing some ml uh, that's end user serving but you know that sort of experience right like your cre partner a reliability engineering partner comes to you and says hey this is all messed up what what's going on and then you have to do this like back you know, you have to look back and you have to like do, you know, mystery solving to figure out what's going on. So that's a kind of disconnect that we talked about or that, you know, I mean, and I, I know that it's part of the discourse right now. A lot of folks are talking about this is like that divide between dev and data. So uh, I think schema evolution is one that we've like all really felt. <laughs> and so being able to automatically adjust to that. So what we do 
is yeah, if your schema changes, whether it's CDT, CDC or streaming, and this is actually important for CDC because, you know, for in, in the case of change data capture or database replication, you might have an entire table that's added, right? You yep. might be consumed from a bunch, like 50 different operational databases and like, you know, something major changes. So being able to adapt to that in real time without bothering you and without like breaking anything, yeah. we just, we create, there's a new table, we create a new table in your Snowflake or wherever mm-hmm. it might be. And, you know, so it's, it's that schema evolution is a really big one. That's super helpful. Yeah. That, new data sources are always like a huge, <laughs> the downstream impact yeah. of like, such a painful thing to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And then our observability tool, again, like you might be watching, it lets anyone that's involved in this space from dev to data, watch the data as it's flowing through. So you have uh, real-time like volume tracking, like sometimes the volume goes up, what's going on? Sometimes the volume goes weirdly down, maybe there's an outage. So, you know, being able to investigate that, having that live in front of you, if there there's some like other ways in which you can spot anomalies, like we do, uh, we always let you know what the top values are at any given time within a time frame, and compared to how that's changed from before, you know, last seen, first seen information on the, the kind of things that are sometimes in information schemas that are hard to get to, and then some additional stuff. We just put everything up front. And then lastly, well, there are a lot of features that I can talk about, but the other thing I wanted to mention is you can set expectations, quality expectations in your data movement pipeline on specific fields or values for specific fields. So you can get, you know, you can quarantine bad data or just tag it and get a warning and so on and so forth. Um, Yeah, for me, those are like quality aspects. Um, and then there's a slightly more technical one, which I will mention, which is because we handle streaming data or consume from streaming, streaming sources, we do exactly once and strong ordering of data, which also is really helpful if you're working with streaming data. Yeah. Super helpful. All right, Costas, you're up. Thank you so much, Eric. So, Sandona, you talked about like a lot of like very interesting things, but uh, and I, I will probably touch again uh, at least uh, a few of them. But let's. What I would like to ask you to do is like put your product hat right, and let's help a little bit like our audience to understand like the use cases. Like we are talking about like all this data. We are talking about streaming data but processing, you know, CDC, like all these things. But before we get into like the technical stuff, why do we do that at the end, right? Like why, let's say, what are like the most common use cases that you see out there? Like people, for example, care about consuming a CDC stream, right? You mentioned, for example, that with AppSolver, you can take the data like from like a Postgres, CDC feed, for example, and like directly like push it into like Snowflake, right? Not dump it like on S3 or something like that, and then prepare it like to load on Snowflake. So why we do that? Like, what are we going to do with this data on Snowflake, right? And what's the difference between the data, right? Like, are they identical between like, do we just replicate what's happening on Postgres, like on Snowflake, or you see something else happening there? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. I'll try to put on my product hat. But, but I'll actually start by saying, as a data scientist, I want to solve problems for the business, right? Uh, again, thinking like, like higher level and, and big picture, especially as, as like when you've been doing it for a while, you learn to start to think about, okay, what are the questions that we need to answer in order to make good decisions for my business? And then you, at some point, you go past the you know twenty or sixty, let's say, or so questions that you're going to answer at every company that that you you work at. Like, what is my, what when do I call my customer healthy? When is a customer likely to churn? And like, you know, when are my seeing supports to get to get spikes and stuff? Once you move past those things, right, there's going to be questions 
about your product itself, not just like clickstream data, not just user behavior data, although that data is also extremely important, but more like more in depth. What is my product? And what is it doing? When is it, you know, what is its peak usage like? When is it faltering? When does it, what are the times when I, you know, my user comes to my website and they have to wait an extra millisecond or something for something to load? Those things, those types of questions as you get there, then that is when prod data becomes really important. That's one from the analytics point of view. That's one side. The other is if you're literally like if your product is based on data that your users are generating live. So one of our one of our big one of the big use cases we see is for ad tech, where you have to do sort of ad attribution based on folks actually being online and, and what they're doing. So again, that's you know, the data is being produced at high scale and it has to be near real time. So that that's one thing we see. So from the analytics point of view, the way I see it is prod data is your moat data. So we talk about business modes, like you're you're a you're an entrepreneur. So the business mode is what differentiates the business from other others in in in, in the re- you know relevant space. And so I think of prod data as your moat data because, well, two things. One, it's data that you uniquely have because you're generating it. It's literally your product. And so, like, you know, it's it's something that no one else can have. So in that sense, it's a mode. But then the other aspect is you have to unlock it. You actually have to, you know, use it and get it into your warehouse and do, do the analytics. And then it becomes, you know, a, a true differentiator for you. So, yeah. So, so for me, that's why prod data is important or operational data is important from an analytics point of view. And then I talked about the use case of ad tech. And then the other uh, another set of users we have is we have some larger, like in the healthcare service industry, for example, where or whenever, wherever you have multiple kinds of interactions that the users are having with your product. So for example, if I'm a managed health healthcare provider, then there's the provider, doctor component. There's the, you know, individuals who are utilizing the service. There's the insurance components. Like all of these things are usually kind of well separated, but you have to consume data from all of them and then sort of consolidate and do analytics on that. So that that's another way. Like and maybe it's not as like real time as ad tech needs to be, but it is still like you don't want to have a big mismatch between when someone went to see a doctor and you know when they're going to get surgery, right? So having all of that data come through it's like that's another big use case that we see. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's super interesting. And uh, what about? Okay, let's move some something else that you talked about, like with Eric about like the schema evolution, right? And how, okay, obviously things evolve, right? Especially when we are talking about products. And I think like you put it very well there. Like there's no way that the database that you have, for many reasons, like from performance, from just like the product itself adding features or debugging or there are many different reasons, right? So the data will change, like the schema itself will change at the source. Many way, many times it might also change in a way that can be tricky, right? Like very subtle changes, but we are talking about machines here, right? Like in the human brain, zero and one and true and false might semantically be equivalent, but this doesn't mean that like it's also true like for the machine, right? And the developer might do that, might change it. And things tend to like to break there. So in a real-time environment, let's say, and when I say real-time, let's say like in a streaming environment, right? Where, okay, you have an unbounded, let's say, source of data, you don't know exactly like and the data will keep like getting generated. So you have to react fast, I guess, right? How do you deal with that when you have like so many downstream dependencies, right? Because like one column type changes at the prod database and you might have hundreds of pipelines that one way or another depend on that, right? So how do you deal with that? Both from what you've seen 
like as a vendor that is trying like to give solutions, right? But also like from your users, like what you've seen out there. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard one. Like it's, or maybe I should say it's a painful one, right? It's something that it's hard not to experience if you are building um, these pipelines and then use cases uh, on top of them. Because as you said, um, once a source data gets to your warehouse or, or lake, um, then all of a sudden, you know, it's being modeled and it's going into this pipeline and that pipeline. And like, so if you don't catch it at that, at that very beginning, it really kind of is bad news bears later on. And that's kind of why we're building what we're building. So, I mean, I was, as a practitioner, I've faced the pain, felt it. And the only, only real solution is, you know, ha either having or both having a full picture at all times of where your data is going and what you know, deliverables it's feeding. So like lineage and also like being able to appropriately like, so just you made it, you make a change somewhere and making sure that it actually flows through to the right places at the right time while minimizing the amount of like recomputation, right? Because mm -hmm. you also don't want to like go and, and replay a hundred different pipelines. So as a practitioner, like it's, it's a lot of things to keep in mind, uh, but that's sort of the approach is like, just like just have a very good sense of and visibility into your data pipelines and the relations in bet between them and then as a vendor in this specifically in ingestion space like that's what we are that's a pain that we're looking to minimize so we do a bunch of like type re resolution and like if as you said is something like a column type suddenly changes, like, how, how do I deal with that? So what we do is we do, in the short term, we make a copy um, of that and like add a, add a um, uh, suffix saying that like, this is now this type and, and so on and so forth. So there are things that we do that like, uh, you would have, like, we do it automatically so that as much as possible, it prevents breaking a bunch of pipelines downstream. And just having that visibility, I think, is huge. It's like, okay, when this happens, as soon as that happens, you can, you know, with an absolver that, okay, this is weird. This isn't supposed to happen. These, this is what it used to be. And, and this is when it changed. So the timestamp when something changed. And sometimes things kind of fix themselves, right? So, you know, in a, in a, especially for prod data, like, okay, something changes and then you roll back or something. So having those timestamps also, like, this is when this thing changed and then this is when it changed back. So you can go back and you decide what you want to do with that data in the middle. Maybe it's, you know, irrelevant in the grand scheme of things and you just drop it or something like that. So for me, it's really the value prop. And, you know, not, not really even speaking as <laughs> As Absolver, for me as a practitioner and user of Absolver, the value prop is like just being able to watch the data. Yep, yep. That's awesome. And that brings me like to the next question that has to do with like quality. You mentioned that like the user is able like to set like expectations, right? About like the data. And that's like the way that you put like some quality checks there. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, and I have two things that I'm very curious to hear about. Like, first of all, uh, what is like the best way, right, to for a user to go and like define these expectations, right? Because there are like many different users that interact with the data, and not all of them, you know, like they they prefer the same kind of APIs out there, right? Like some are like more engineering, some might be like more of like a data scientist or like an analyst, right? So one thing is that like what's like it, let's say. The, the trade-offs there, like to find like the right way for people like to define these expectations. And the other thing is that, that I would like to hear from you is that what exactly is, an like what are the common expectations that you see out there? Because like, okay, technical can be anything, right? Like you can ask any question about like the data and set it as an expectation, right? So, but I'm sure there are like some patterns, like standard things that like people are looking for or things that like they avoid or some that might be computationally like too expensive like to go and like, set them as expectations so tell us a little bit more about that part yeah absolutely so the quality expectations is a fairly new feature that we rolled out i think about a month maybe a month and a half ago so it's new and it's fresh and i might miss a few things so that talk about it but uh, let's talk for a second about the user experience um, in the product because that was your first question. So 
you can author Absolver ingestion pipelines a few different ways. And exactly for, for the reason that you said, it's like we want to cater to different um, kinds of users, right? So we have a no-code version. Uh, I mean, it's not different versions of, of the product. It's like you, if you want to, if you just, if you, let's say you have a Kafka um, queue that is your source and you have a target that's your Snowflake, you can configure the target and the source in a no-code, like, GUI based like a, a wizard, we call internally an ingestion wizard. So you do the connection strings and you do the uh, target connection strings. And then the next thing it's going to ask you is, okay, this, and it's going to give you a preview immediately of the data. So if it's a coffee queue, you're going to see like, you know, 10, 20, uh, however many example it ends how do you want to pro do you, how do you want to pre-process it do you want to pre-process this right like something's i'm going to do automatically like exactly once in strong ordering but how else do you want to pre-process it so it, you can go in there and say okay and you can look at the schema you can you know click into let's say there is customer address and, you can, and then there's nested field in there like their whole you know this is a bad example but you know street address city and then country or something and you can say okay this is i want to redact the street address. I, I only care about, especially for landing in my warehouse, I only care about the city and, and the country or something like that. So you can do that in UI, in the inside the GUI at, at as you're setting up this job. So masking, redacting is a big one. You can exclude columns entirely. You can you might discover that, okay, there are two columns that are actually the same thing. Maybe it's like phone number and phone no, right? And they're like, one is 80% of the time, one is 20% of the time or something like that. So you can coalesce those columns again in within the UI. So there are these things that having the data pop up immediately and, you know, looking through it and make, uh, you can configure those things. Um, and then at the end of that, you can click when you say launch job, it's going to start the job. But before that, it's actually going to show you the SQL that, it, that we generated. It's, it's SQL-like, right? It's, it's Absolver SQL that was generated that's actually going to be the job. So if you are someone, if you are comfortable in SQL, for example, at this, at this point, you can make, you can add to that. You can say, okay, additionally, I want to do this, this other like customizations and so on and so forth. And so, and that's a second user kind of user experiences. You can, instead of using the wizard, you can just create a solver worksheet, write a bunch of SQL and build a job off of that. Now, because it is, SQL and it's like it's not hidden from you, it's surface to you. You can, of course, just you can do your code version control and CI CD off of that. It's just like code. And then the other ways in which you can create Absolver jobs is we have a DBT integration. So you can write DBT models that get executed over Absolver. We have a Python SDK. So if you're writing Python scripts for your workloads, you can use that. And we have an Absolver CLI. So depending on how, what you're used to, how you're used to doing your work, there, there are a few different options. And in every case, you can, we try to make as much available across the board as possible. You can imagine like in, in the GUI, it's, it's like the trickiest to like include all the different quality checks and stuff. But I think we're doing a pretty good job of that. The, to your second question, like, what are expectations and how do we define them? So basically, it's going to be, so the, we, you would do expectations in a SQL statement, right? When you're doing the copy into Snowflake, for example, you say you're selecting these columns and then you do a exception clause, right? So write this, except when, or something like that, syntax is something like that. And then you say, okay, when, let's say, a state column is more than two letters or something like that. You know, states are all given as two letters. So something like that, you can say, okay, if this happens, so just like you would write in SQL, like if I, like, for example, a string column, I would write the same thing. Like if this doesn't match this regex pattern, for example, that I'm expecting, then I don't want it. Or the difference here is that you can say what to do in the case of a failing expectation. So you can say drop or warn or something else. and that sort of helps make the process go faster. You're not making decisions like as the data are flowing in necessarily, like you can, you have that information later on to adjust accordingly. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's super interesting. And are like expectations usually targeting, let's say row level data or like column or like table, like what's the granularity that like people commonly care about? Because, okay, you said like the example about like the, 
uh, regular expression. So I guess, let's say we, we are expecting like credit card numbers, right? Uh, and we want to make sure that they follow some pattern, right? And if not, we are, so this is like on the, on their own level, right? But do you see like people also doing like more, how to say that, like holistic kind of like expectations, like the distribution, for example, of these columns should be between like this and that, or yeah, like something like that. Like what are like the most common things that you see out there? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're we're adding that. That's exactly what I'm working on a PRD for right now. It's like what sort of, for numeric fields, what sort of aggregate things we're going to calculate on the fly and present. Again, as I said, like there's in their observability page, like all of these things are sort of there. So I want to surface, for example, like, uh, you know, quantiles, relevant quantiles and, and max and min and stuff. We do a little bit of that column level. I mean, we do have, we have column level properties in the observability tool. Usually it's like last seen, first seen, the top values, the null density and things like that, things that are, you know, that that are really useful. And then you can like query that table and put conditions on that. So if you say like my phone number column, let's go back to that. If it's, if the null density suddenly increases to like 5% or above, I'm getting nulls and then like do something like let me know or alert alert me or something because people are not filling in their phone numbers or something. So you can do that already. A bunch of things that are already surfaced to you at the column level you can use to cust create custom alerts and stuff. But I, I want to do more. I want to putting on my product hat, right? Because you asked this question and I'm sure the other data, you know, data experts are, are going to think the same thing. It's like, okay, I don't just want row level expectations. I want column level expectations and I care about this and that. So these are all things that, that we'll be adding as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's awesome. All right. One last question for me and then I'll give like the um, uh, microphone back to Eric as we are approaching like the end of the show here. So you have like a very interesting journey. You started from doing some very, how to say that, like detailed work, like one of the most detailed and like precision work that someone has to do out there, like working and trying to reveal, let's say, like how nature works in like the smallest possible, like granularity that we can reach as humans. You did data science in the industry and now you are doing product, right? So... It might not be completely accurate what I'm going to say, but like, let's say you go from like something very specific to reaching the, like the point where you mainly have like to deal with people at the end as a product person, right? So it's not just the technology out there. It's also like the people and people, unfortunately, are like very hard to predict, right? Like and understand and communicate with them. So precision to vagueness, like you go like... You you travel like this spectrum. And I want to ask you from this like unique experience that you have, something specific about like the data pra practice, right? There are like two main, let's say, uh, approaches when you work like professionally with data. There's like the exploratory part. Right, like there is the discovery part, like the science part, where you have to sit in front of like a notebook with a bunch of data, and you try with some kind of goal that you have to figure out something that's like very experimental, right? And then you have, on the other hand, the engineering side, which has to be very strict. Like we have pipelines, and pipelines are like very well defined. Like we can't randomly choose steps, right, going from one to the other. And somehow these, let's say, kind of like extremes in how we perceive like the world, they have to work together, right? And as you're working like on a product where you have like this vision of allowing like every practitioner, like data practitioner to work, like from the software engineer that's doing like production stuff down to the BI analyst or like the data scientist and like in between also like the data engineers. How do you see, like, first of all, like how hard do you think that 
of a problem that is like to do this bridging and how it can be achieved. Yeah, well, that, that was, there is so much in that question. So this is how I see it. I think everything starts with that exploration. Whether you're doing engineering work, data work, product work, or physics work, I think that the exploration has to be there. And the more you try to take that away, the more everyone in that workflow team, however you want to describe it, is disenfranchised of a like opportunity to be creative and innovative and really see like what's going on. Which is fine. Like depending on the scale, it might be that not everyone can do the exploration, right? Maybe you have to do the exploration and then decide, okay, this these are the things that need to happen and I'm going to commit to these and I'm going to delegate. And then so that is okay. But everything somewhere or other begins with that exploration, right? As a product manager, as a product person, I think that is the most interesting step is that going from that exploration to the spec right? This is what we discovered. These are the assumptions that we made. And, you know, you know a lot more about product than I do, you know, codifying that and then saying, okay, and this is the spec for requirements for what what we're going to build. And then another very interesting handoff to me is from PRD to ERD, right? If the product requirements doc, what's the engineering requirements doc and what are, you know, what are the, the trade-offs there? So I think the way I approach is, I think all of these like handoffs, and like sort of changing the lens of looking at things. These are very interesting to me. So more than a challenge, I think of them as like an, an opportunity to like learn more and, and figure stuff out and dig deeper. And then with that, I will say it's also super fun to geek out and just like implement something, right? So for me, the biggest thing is like enjoyment, I guess, is a theme that's coming out from what I'm saying is like, I really doing like doing the exploration. I really like translating and, and making those you know different models at different phases. And then also like it's really fun to just go and like bang your head against, you know, a, a seg fault or nowadays it's, you know, a Python tracebacker or whatever, you know, and, and just do it. So for like maybe this is a, a good thing to sort of retrospect on. I, I just finding enjoyment, I think, in on all of them helps bridge that gap is, is one thing, just from a very personal point of view. From a uh, team cohesion point of view, I think that, I mean, tooling can help, certainly. And that's why we're building what we're building in that, like, no man's land between dev and data, but also just collaboration, right? Like, everyone talking to each other and, you know, figuring out this. I, I wrote about this a few days ago, like, as like it, it's everyone's fault and it's no one's fault. As a data person, if I just worry about like my stakeholders, my business partners who are downstream of me and what they need and try to get them what they need, then I'm doing disservice to folks who are upstream of me, the app developers who might also need something back from me. Okay? Not, it's not just the, that we have to agree on a contract between what they're producing and what I'm accepting, but also like they want their analytics or they want me to have some sort of flexibility in what I'm expecting from them and so on and so forth. So that like communication and collaboration is, you know, table stakes. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Eric, the microphone yours again. Yes, well, as we like to say, we are, we're at the buzzer, but time for one more question. And I actually want to return to physics and your time at CERN, I couldn't help but wonder if there were any things that surprised you in terms of sort of discoveries or, you know, you as outsiders, we hear about, it sounds really crazy to collide these particles at really high speeds, but as an actual physicist, was there anything that really surprised you as part of that experience, colliding particles? That's such a great question. I will, instead of taking a bunch of time to think back on my whole time there, I will just say the thing that came to my mind right away, which was, I was surprised to hear that the whole LHC was shut down because a beaver had cut into <laughs> the wiring in our tunnels. So it's <laughs> maybe there's a lesson there, right? Like you make grand best laid plans and then something happens and throws a wrench in it. That is, man. Is that not the universe saying that, you know, it's really hard to beat nature and it will just kind of do what it does. So, wow, that is <laughs> that's hilarious. Awesome. Well, Shantana, this has been such 
such a wonderful time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've learned a ton. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Nice meeting you both. Always a joy to talk to a nuclear physicist about data. And boy, was that a great episode. There's just something about someone who's collided particles at insane speeds that, you know, it's just fun to talk to them about almost anything. <laughs> it was great. So Shantano from, from Upsolver was uh, just a delightful guest. And for someone, she is so, so smart on so many levels, right? I mean, nuclear physics, colliding particles at CERN, working in natural language processing, working as an ML engineer. And she's so down to earth and approachable and just really a delight. Like it was really fun to talk to her. I think one of the things that I found really interesting, and actually, I mean, there's so many things about Upsolver that were interesting and, and sort of, you know, focusing on the developer as opposed to the data engineer for a pipeline tool was really interesting. But one of the nuggets from the show was how she talked about the differences of working with data as a scientist, a physicist, and working on data in a startup. Um, Because there are some similarities, but there are a whole lot of differences. And her perspective on that was so interesting. And I think that it was interesting because she took learnings from both sides, right? And so she, from her perspective, there are things that the academic community can learn from startups and then like, you know, vice versa. So that was a great discussion. Oh, 100%. I totally agree with you. First of all, I think it's it's hard to find people that can do like a really good, like even like an average job, to be honest, across the spectrum of like different disciplines that she has, right? Mm. We're talking about someone who has gone from crunching numbers about some atomic particles at scale. Right. And when I say at scale, I mean, not just yeah. like at scale of like the infrastructure needed there, but like at scale of like the teams, like it's like literally like thousands of people that they have like to cooperate, like to come up with these things. And doing data science, doing ML work and becoming a product person. Right. Yeah. That's like, that's like a, a crazy like spectrum of like skills and competence like the person needs like to develop to be good at all that stuff, right? So first one, I think like just for this, like someone should listen to her because I think it's like on its own, like a very unique experience to have. At the same time, I think you touched something about like the differences and the like similarities with about like working with data in different like environments. And I think that's like what is like really fascinating, in my opinion, when it comes to data as like infrastructure or products or whatever we want to call it, because data is is a kind of like asset that there's no way that you are not going to end up having a diverse group of people that need mm. to work together in order like to turn it into something valuable, right? Like think that. The things that we talked with here about, like talking from the engineer who builds the actual product, even like the front end engineer, right? Like, and you have experience of that, like with Rudderstack, for example, and the work that this person is doing actually affects mm. like all from marketeers, product, sure. BI, and people that might even uh, not know that they are in the company if the company is big enough, you know, like they don't care yeah, about exactly. that. And you need to build like products that can accommodate like all these different, like becoming the glue in a way, like between like all these people to make like this whole process of like generating value out of this data, like as robust as possible. And this is not just like an engineering problem. It's not like just like figuring out the right type of technology. It's like a deeply also, how to say that, like, human problem like because there has to be communication there right so figuring all these things out i think is like what creates like so much opportunity in this space and it's i i'll keep something that she said that wherever there is challenge there's also opportunity right Mm. and like that's i think something that's like super important 
and there are big challenges right now in this space, which means that there are also like big opportunities. So I would encourage everyone like to go and listen to her. It's a lovely episode and many there are many things they like to learn from. Definitely. Definitely want to check out. Subscribe if you haven't. Tell a friend. And tune in to learn about nuclear physics and data. And we'll catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.